So like Amy was on stage uh-huh. to endorse him. Colin Allred was there to endorse him. And then Beto came out on stage and jokingly said, we're going to take Joe to Whataburger after this. And I looked at Josh and I go, I guarantee you they're actually going to go to Whataburger. And I had previously met Beto at an event when he was doing his 2018 run for his Senate and like kind of jokingly gave him a Whataburger gift card with my two friends that I was with at this little town hall. So I'm like, they're definitely going to go to Whataburger. Definitely. They're definitely going to go. So Josh and I go to the closest Whataburger. And well, first we pulled up the Southwest yeah, app true. because we wanted to see, are they really going to Whataburger or... And uh, if it, so, will they go to the one over by Love that, Field or will right. they go to the one that's closest to us? So we saw that there was no flights going out because, I mean, the, the event ended like at 930. Yeah. So Southwest is not American Airlines. They're not running nonstop flights. So we saw there was no flights going out to El Paso or anywhere nearby of political significance. Because this was right before Super Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then we went to that Whataburger. And so we walked in. And then immediately after Josh and I walked into this Whataburger, two very large Secret Service agents <laughs> walk in behind us and they lock the doors behind them. And I go up and I go, is the vice president and Beto about to show up? And they go, yeah, I mean, we can't confirm that or not. So five so minutes yes. later, they all walk in and Beto bought me an order of fries we didn't we really didn't care so much about like seeing and talking to joe biden we but actually we really, did not take a photo we didn't with take biden. a photo with joe biden <laughs> i have a picture of him um but uh, when we were talking to beto and his wife amy who yeah. were both so nice and like took the time to talk to us he recorded a video for scott yeah that you had taken yeah so i regrettedly told, did not tell scott to meet us at whataburger and so i thought the next best thing would be to ask Beto if he would just do like a quick 30 second shout out to scott and told him that scott's a baller and is informed and cares and all that kind of stuff so that that was a cool moment yeah for sure that was awesome i'm hannah sims i'm josh esparza and this is thin space a place for conversations where the ordinary and sacred meet through spirituality justice and change Today on the episode, we have Scott Poole joining us. Um, Scott is a senior at Lake Highlands High School. I have known Scott for a few years now, um, and Scott has challenged me in my lack of understanding of the political system, and once I discovered how much Scott reads and listens to podcasts, I realized I had to step up my game if I wanted to talk to him about it, and he sometimes played pickup basketball with us, so... Scott has seen me in various forms of vulnerability of myself. <laughs> various forms of vulnerability and yeah, and learning. It's all the same. <laughs> uh, Scott, tell the tell the people a little bit about you. What, what has pandemic life been like for you? What have you been working on? What are you reading? And yeah, any any fun facts? Um, I'm Scott. It's an honor to be on this podcast. Um, pandemic life, I. Uh, I'm here in my room right now, and this is where I spend most of my time. Um, I wake up, I go to school. Uh, you don't go to school. You go to your desk. I, I virtually attend school. I zoom over there. Um, <laughs> you're right. I don't. Um, anyway, just, you know, chilling, not doing much. Don't really leave the house, so thrilling. 
I'm excited to have Scott on. Like I mentioned earlier, Scott um, is incredibly well-read, engaged. Um, I remember one time before Sunday school started, he told me that he reads every piece of political propaganda that gets mailed to him. And I was like, oh, wow, I just recycled them. So uh, bravo to you, Scott. Um, and so I'm excited to, to just have you on and us talk a little bit about what, what we see going on. Is it a lot of political propaganda that you're being mailed, Scott? I actually get mailed none, but the pool family gets mailed quite a lot, sure. <laughs> you know, but yeah, so it's, I guess it's not actually my mail. So it's probably like a felony or something, but whatever. You And you can't purchase like political like um, t-shirts and stuff, right? I can, if it's like not from a campaign, I can't donate. I don't have any money to donate, but if I wanted to, I couldn't, um, I, I can't buy that. like, I can't buy stickers or so yeah all that is either you know stolen or like recycled or someone else buys it for me anyway I don't steal things don't get me wrong but <laughs> so Scott you're 17 which means you this is why you can't buy these political um, merchandises um, it also right. means you can't vote this year I cannot what a shame when did you like really get into politics? Have you always really enjoyed history and learning about it? Um, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint it, but I can definitely tell you about a couple of times. Um, I remember very explicitly in 2015, I had this laptop that I just got for like Christmas or something. I don't remember, but I was sitting in my room watching one of the Republican debates and one of the, you know, the primary debates. Um, and I remember Donald Trump and Ted Cruz were going at it about Palestine. And I was like, what the heck is Palestine? And I Googled it and I was like, that's not a country. And I just got super like, I didn't get it. And I wanted to. Um, and so that was one of the moments I don't really, I'm not sure. Um, but that was one of the things that definitely like, I was like, I don't understand this and I want to, cause it seems pretty important. Cause there's like signs all over everywhere and seems like a little confusing to me. Um, and then in 2018, I was very inspired by Beto O'Rourke. Um, that was really when, like Josh said, I started reading all the mail that was sent to my house. Um, and just, um, started to, utilize the things that I had around me, like newspapers, magazines, um, stuff like that. And then podcasts, which are free. So that's exceptional. So you can really understand a lot of things if you really just try. Um, I definitely love history. Um, those are like, school's fine, but I don't really, like, I don't like math. Like it's whatever, I'll do it. But like history. Me too, Scott. And writing, I'm actually like, I'm down with that. Like, I'd much rather do that than math or anything. So that's definitely another thing um, for sure. And then just there's like a level of unawareness pretty much around me that I feel like just kind of frustrated me. So then I started to kind of not be one of those people, if you know what I'm, I mean. I would just kind of talk to people or something and they would just, you know, be unaware of what was happening. And I was just frustrated by that. So then I started to kind of learn more myself. So I didn't do that. I wish that I was like a fraction of 
what Scott is when I was 17. <laughs> it would have like helped me know more in my 20s when I all of a sudden had the like power to have a voice on things. What was 17-year-old Hannah occupying her time with? I don't even not politics and like not bettering myself and like any sort of like general helpful knowledge probably to my future. Yeah, that sounds very similar to me. Yeah. The only things I can think of 17-year-old Josh doing was working at Buckle, uh, driving his lowered Mitsubishi Eclipse with his giant subs and uh, working out far too much. Like that, that that is what I filled my time with. All very, very small and shallow. So bravo, Scott. Bravo. Question, do you... Did you find yourself educating yourself to be aware of what was happening because you did not want to be uninformed but still vote? Or did you do that with the intent or hope that you could have these kind of conversations with people around you? Maybe you be the the conduit to educate or at least spark interest enough for them to then go and do that work themselves. Um, maybe both. I definitely started as like, I felt like I was behind, which is kind of a weird thing to think about, but I definitely did think like, obviously I don't understand any of this, so I probably should. Um, and so that was really personal trying to understand, like you see yard signs all like, I remember very vividly seeing yard signs and I was like, who is that person? And like, just like really wanting to know, because obviously if someone cares enough to put up a yard sign and like, there's something, there's like a reason for that. Or maybe they're, you know, so I was just kind of um, trying to do that for myself. Um, but then closer to high school, or I guess in high school, like last year, um, one of my very close friends, uh, probably my best friend, he reestablished um, a young Democrats at chapter at my school. Um, so then at that point, I kind of, you know, you kind of realize I realized that I was definitely I had a better sense of things than all of my friends did. Um, and at that point it became more, um, educating them, trying to do my best to help them understand what I wanted to understand, um, before that and, and understanding why it matters for us as young people who, even though we can't vote, um, we have a, a very large stake in what's happening. Um, so yeah. Hannah, like when, when did you really find yourself starting to become aware and active in the political scene? When I was probably a sophomore in college, I might have been a junior, honestly. I took a one of my social work classes was a policy class. Mm. And it was the first time where I was like, oh, like government and politics actually impact how people live their day to day lives vulnerable people are way disproportionately affected by policies and bad policies. Um, and I thought I should care about this because this stuff impacts people's lives. So I probably didn't really get into caring about politics till I was a junior in college. Hmm. What about you? Yeah. I mean, I would say it was pretty late. Um, growing up, I, it was just not super necessary. Like I grew up in a a pretty conservative um, environment as we've talked about. And, um, like, it was kind of described to me that like you just vote according to what you believe spiritually. And so like there's one party, the Republican party that tends to, to be more aligned quote unquote with what um, you believe in a conservative environment. And so that, that like, I just blindly attached my um, self to that party and voted in that capacity for a long time. Um, and really it was 2016, right? It was like after the election happened 
and I was just stunned of what what the outcome was, right? Like I just I did not think it was going to happen. I did not think someone who had no experience in politics, who had spent a lot of time ruffling cultural feathers and all this kind of stuff, would would be the person that is the leader of the free world. Um, and here it was, like that happened, and I think we all had more questions and answers at that point. Um, but really recognize that, like, if I was going to have some type of awareness um, and understanding of the nuance of what happens with politics and like I needed to invest myself in that work. And and that obviously went hand in hand with like the more I, I read and the more I understood uh, of like Dallas history and um, the way that race has been a part of that and, and how that has been perpetuated through politics locally um, that gave me a better understanding of like my call and my work in ministry. And so, um, as I continue to develop that portion of myself, um, it just became natural that I, I became more involved in politics and I wanted to read more of who's making the policies, who says what, why do they say that? What is, what are their records? Um, and, and what are the things in the agendas that are trying to be pushed forward? And so, um, it, it has been a slow, um, it took me a while to get to the party, but um, since then, I feel like I've been deeply immersive in that work. Like Victoria likes to give me a hard time that I probably listen to four or five political podcasts a day, and they're not all super long, but um, they all each have a different interpretation or insight into what's happening on a local and yeah. national level. Well, and that not caring and not being involved in politics, especially local politics, is a the people that can choose to not be involved possess a certain type of privilege and power that allows them to not be informed and involved because really at the end of the day, their lives aren't being impacted that much. Totally. Like it's messy. It's hard. And I, I have a lot of peers who say like it, it, it brings out the worst in people. People always want to argue. There's no right answer. So like I just choose not to get involved with politics at all. It doesn't affect my life. It doesn't affect me. So like it doesn't matter. Um, and it's like, wow, that is that is an incredible amount of privilege and reality that so many people don't have that like it it is really nice i guess theoretically to be able to say like it doesn't matter because it doesn't affect me and the people who are speaking the most about it either feel that effect or grew up or are closely connected to the to the issues at hand and so um i think that's that's a, a really interesting point that we have continued to navigate as we talk about politics and, and I'm curious from Scott, like um, as a 17 year old, like you, you literally don't get a voice right now, right? Like you can't vote. Um, you can educate yourself. So theoretically you could say that and uh, it would make the most sense out of anybody else. So Scott, like how, how have you understood or, or what do you experience when people say that to you? Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm doing phone banks recently. Uh, sometimes people I'll tell people I'm like I'm 17 and I can't vote so you should definitely go vote because this is all I can do is call you and you answer the phone so that's you know part of my appeal and people are always like why like what they like they take a step back and they're like why are you like what do you care um but in reality um decisions that are going to be made right now probably are going to affect me more than anybody um kind of an inflection point with climate change, um, the economy. I mean, there's a lot of issues, obviously, that are going to be just absolutely critical, and they're going to affect how I live, you know, the way I'm about to go to college and all sorts of things. And um, 
I don't I don't have a direct voice in that I can go to the polls. Um, but I definitely there are definitely other things that I can do to make sure that the things that I view is favorable, the, the candidates that I view um, that I believe should be elected and, sh- and, and who I want to represent me. Um, it's it's going to matter in the future. It can matter for my future. It's going to matter for the future of those around me. Um, and so I, I can't stand by um, and, and, and let other people make decisions on my behalf. Um, even though I can't make decisions uh, for myself, I can do my best to, to, to motivate the people around me, the people I love to go vote and then also take advantage of the resources that are available um, to get people who I don't know to go out and vote and, 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 and work for things that I believe in, even if they're doing it for a different reason. Um, they still are doing what I want them to do, basically. So, yeah. That's yeah. cool. I mean, how do you say no to I'm not going to vote when you have a 17 year old saying like, I can't, I literally can't. So I'm having a conversation with you and asking if you will like, well, well done, Scott. Well done. Thanks. Do, you, do you have a high success rate when you use that? Um, that line. Yeah. Like, like the, are people like, oh, okay, I'm going to go vote now. Um, I don't. No, not really. I mean, phone banks in themselves are just a free. I mean, they're a grind. No one, no one wants to talk to you. No one wants to hear what you have to say. Most people just hang up. No, no one really answers. Um, but there's there's usually one person that that cares and they want to hear what you have to say. Um, and it's probably usually that person who who who. I can work in the fact that I'm 17. I want them to vote. Um, so I'd say it's pretty receptive. Um, but overall, no, because no one really, they just hear the first part and they're like, I'm Scott Poole and I'm calling on behalf of this candidate or that candidate. And at that point they just hang up or they just say, no, I don't want to, I don't want to. The most common line is it's like a, usually it's like a, like a grandma and they're like, I don't want any politics. And then they just hang up. And so, yeah. Take me off your no call. Um, right. Which they don't say that they don't ask to get taken off. They just hang up, which means they're gonna get called again. Like I can take them off the list if they ask me to, but they don't get to that point. So pro tip, you don't want people to talk to you. There is a button, they will take you off the list. Scott, let's talk a little bit about um this idea of bipartisanship. I think when we spent a little bit of time in the the pre room drafting our ideas, um, we talked about like what what does this really bring to the table? Like, is it, is it a necessary evil? Is it something that we want to perpetuate? Um, maybe we explained it a little in layman's terms for those who may not be super in depth with some of the political jargon. Um, I mean, we even see this in like Hamilton, right? Like this idea of like different sides coming to the table and negotiating some type of compromise where somebody get each party gets some kind of benefit out of the situation. Um, even if it's not the ideal scenario. So what, give me some of your thoughts about that. Um, where to start? Um, <laughs> there's just so much. There's a very good book by Ezra Klein called why we're polarized. Um, and it sort of outlines a historical understanding of polarization. Um, and really the way that, it, you know, it didn't used to be that all conservatives were Republicans and all 
liberals or Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, there used to be a lot more diversity in ideas and policies, uh, which made bipartisanship a lot more possible. Um, because, I mean, there were people who were Democrats who were, you know, staunch segregationists and things like that. There were very, very conservative positions to take. Um, and that has sort of gone away since, you know, more recently. Um, as far as, um, I don't, it's very complicated as, you know, you've got like, how do you, um, appeal to people to actually get elected? And then once you're elected, is it actually pragmatic to say that you're going to, you know, strike a deal with the other party? Um, I mean, that was one of the central questions of the 2020 presidential election that I definitely um, wrestled with. Do you go for the uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, you know, way of looking at politics as we're going to have a massive movement of people who didn't used to vote, but they're going to go vote now for our party. And we're not really going to try to we might try and it probably won't work, but we're really just going to get in there and, and do what we want to do versus Joe Biden, who is more, he was more into, you know, I've been in the Senate for forever. I can crack a deal with, with whomever I need to, to do that with. Um, and I don't know. It's a lot to talk about. I, I definitely would say I've kind of moved. I used to think, I mean, I was super, uh, the, the, the line of reasoning of, we should at least try really resonated with me personally for with Joe Biden and, 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 and saying that bipartisanship is something that we're not going to get anything done if you don't um, try. And it's a little bit complicated. I mean, it's so complicated. Um, but like, if you look at like local elections, it's definitely a lot more, you know, there's only one, you cannot pass a bill in the Texas legislature without bipartisanship. It's not possible, but in the Senate, you know, you, you have kind of have, to, you know, it's just, there's mm-hmm. a lot there. Um, I definitely think that it's different between it. It definitely varies from local politics, um, the state legislature, uh, and then Congress and the Senate. Um, so I don't know if that answer is very helpful, but there's just a lot there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, we're also so divided right now, and especially in like, like big picture politics, Mm -hmm. we also become so like dialed in and we have so many single policy voters that like so many people are willing to like put a stake in the hill and say, no, this is the one issue that I am willing to like compromise on or not compromise on. And I think this election specifically, we have so many single policy voters. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I would say we have more. I think the policies have definitely expanded too. Like I I think for a long part of history, a, the primary single policy vote has been abortion, which I think is still very much a policy that pushes people. Um, now we're talking about defunding the police, right? Like, like that is something that is pushing people for or against, um, you know, I've, I've also heard conversations and, and this is less likely, but people will make the comments of they're voting. They're not voting for the president or the vice president, right? Like they're voting for the Supreme court. Like they're voting to get their representation onto, um, 
the justices of their <clears throat> of our government and so yeah i mean i don't know i don't know it may, maybe i'm wrong in that but i think the the way people vote has expanded i don't know if the people i don't know if there's more people now that are voting primarily on one issue or policy than a whole host of things yeah we're also just so polarized and totally our understanding of those like big single voter issues that it makes bipartisanship frustrating if completely ineffective at all. Yeah. I mean, because it, it, it blends the, and it makes it very ambiguous of the morality associated to that. Right. And it's like, if you are not on this side, if you're not going to say that you champion this work and you say that you are a blank person, whether that is a person of faith, whether that is a person who advocates for justice, whatever that capacity is, um, and you are not doing this thing, then you're bad. Like, I think that's naturally the tendency we tend to go to, right? Like if you are only a single policy voter who only cares about abortion, um, you're a bad person for doing that. And, and I think we can disagree, but I think once we start labeling these deep moral judgments on that, um, as an Enneagram one, I understand the, the trap in doing that, but, uh, and the, the resistance is, is real to not do that work. But I think that makes those conversations all the more difficult is when we, when we so quickly just want to label these things as good or bad, whether you are for us or against us. Um, then the, like Scott's talking about the bipartisan dialogue and conversation can't happen. Yeah. Ooh, let's talk about religious spaces being involved in politics and advocacy work. Perfect. Scott, um, I mean, what has been your experience around that? Obviously, you uh, grew up in church. You have friends that go to various kinds of faith communities. Like, how have you seen religious spaces engage in political conversations? So I've, I've gone to White Rock um, since I was three, White Rock United Methodist Church. So that's definitely, um, that's where my sort of, I mean, there isn't a lot of, as far as I remember, there wasn't, that wasn't really something discussed very much. I probably didn't pay much attention, but, um, I'd say my sort of experience as far as church and, and politics, there wasn't really much discussion from what I remember. Um, definitely not before Mitchell became the pastor. Um, and that's different from, a lot of my friends, um, I have a lot of friends who go to very different ch churches that are very ideologically and theologically different from White Rock um, and different from from my personal beliefs. Um, and so for me, it was that, you know, relating religion and, and spirituality to politics was something more personal. Um, and, you know, how do you, how do you, say you know how can you say you're a christian and you know what do you vote what does that mean when you vote because you know obviously it affects things um public policy affects things for everyone it affects everyone around you um so how does that relate to your spirituality and your own understanding of, of how to be um i guess a good person is like a bad way to put it but something like that yeah josh i'm interested what's your take on like political advocacy from the pulpit. Ooh, from the pulpit. As someone who has access to a pulpit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this is a hard conversation, um, specifically because I think 
whatever spirituality you ascribe to, it frames who we are and the way that we understand ourselves and the way that we see the world and in the way that we navigate the world. So it, it provides us, I would say it's not, ex- this is all it does. I would, I would say Christianity and other forms of spiritual expression is not simply just a, a set of morality rules and f- functions, um, but it plays a role into that. So then when you engage in politics, and I think it's natural for us to find the thing or the arguments or the party that best reflects who we are and how we understand our own spirituality and morals. Like, I think that's just, that's human and that's fine. Um, I think the hard part of this conversation then is the way that information is used and um, transported onto other people. And so specifically, if we're talking about pastors who have a pulpit on a regular basis or semi-regular basis, um, you, you have weight and authority in your word. Like people have placed you in this position of power. People want to know what you have to say. Um, you know, when we're in seminary, they talk about like, uh, when people come in on Sunday mornings for worship, like they are coming in with all their baggage and everything is heavy and they're looking for one piece of good news, one piece of hope. Like, what are you going to give them and are you going to give it to them? And, um, I think, if that is the type of weight and importance and significance that we place on pastors um, on, on the, from an expectation from the pulpit, and then we allow them to then say, this aligns with how we ascribe our own biblical understanding. This is what we believe to be true. This is what we believe is right about God. So then this is how we are voting. Go vote this way. Um, I think that's an abuse of power. And I think that's Um, That does not give people the opportunity to then create their own agency in the ways that their that politics can intersect with their spirituality. And and for some people, they would say, like, that's totally fine. Like, that is the role of a pastor. The role of the pastor is to help navigate what's happening culturally and spiritually and to give people the opportunity to then um, make informed choices. But I think there's a difference between saying um, this is my set of beliefs. This is how I interpret the Bible, and these are the policies that I'm advocating for. Therefore, these are the candidates that I'm voting for, rather than saying, um, if you are Christian and you are with us, then you are going to vote for this party, and you're going to vote for this president and this governor, because they're going to uphold the values that we believe to be true for everybody. Scott, what do you think? Like, What what do you think would happen if I uh, went before our congregation at White Rock and uh, I, I gave a sermon next weekend about this is who I'm voting for, for the president. And this is why the Josh Esparza endorsement. <laughs> and, and, and he like, here's some ways for you to educate yourselves. You don't have to vote like me, but this is why I am choosing to vote this way. Um, I'm not sure how that would happen uh, or how that would go. That's not sure why they uh, would let me in the pulpit. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. I think it would, I don't know. It'd be something unprecedented, at least from what I can remember. Um, I mean, I personally wouldn't think it was a bad thing, um, especially if it's about, I mean, if you tell them not, you know, that they don't have to do the same thing. Um, but that's definitely not something that people are used to at this church. Um, and it can be different at other churches. So I don't know. I mean, here's the deal. This happens, right? Like I, I worked right. at, I worked at a church that <clears throat> actively advocated for elected officials that, that had elected officials from their party that they supported come and lead 
Q&As and sermons on Sunday mornings. Like, like That's insane. There are very um, conservative churches or evangelical churches, whatever language you want to use, who have no problem showing you your cards, putting their hand on the scale and saying, this is what you do if you're right. And the opposite of that are progressive churches that don't want to put their hand on the scale at all, encourage you to go educate yourself, to inform yourself, and then to make your own decision. But I would also say that those spaces are simultaneously commenting on like broad social issues that are impacting their congregations. Say more. Like, I mean, White Rock and Owenwood made like very clear statements earlier this summer after like multiple black people were shot and killed. Mm -hmm. Like, this is not okay. We stand against this. We actively do not believe these things. Here's what we do believe. Here's the scripture and the character of God that we believe backs up Mm -hmm. these beliefs. Like do some internal reflection but this is the guidance that we'll give you. So, like those spaces are willing to comment on like social issues like that, but not necessarily come out and like endorse a candidate for office. Right. But I think subliminally do that by commenting on broad social issues. To- totally. 100%. And I do wonder what it would look like for more progressive churches and spaces in general to, to do that work. Like, and I know Hannah, you brought up that like nonprofits legally aren't allowed to do that. And, um, I think that's wild that nonprofits can't, but for profits can. Um, well, that churches are also considered five hundred one c threes as well. Exactly. So but they sure can. They can, but technically they shouldn't, right? Like that. That's a right. That's that fine line that Scott was talking about earlier. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think personally, coming from a, a more conservative space, and, and here's here's the deal: I don't want to vilify the conservative agenda or church, like. I am who I am, good or bad, because of my experience in the in the conservative evangelical church. Right, like I discovered my passion for ministry. I discovered my passion for youth ministry. Um, I had the call to church plant in the evangelical church, um, and that is what I'm attempting to live out right now. Like, like I do not want to do that, and I don't want that to be the thing that's taken away. Um, however we see such strong and unabashed endorsements from one side. I do wonder what it would look like to get the other side to begin to navigate that water, to be less timid, to offer opportunities for people to still have their own agency and choice and to educate themselves and whatever that may be, but also make some very definitive stances on like, this is who we are. This is what we believe. Therefore, this is how we're going to vote. Um, the choice really is still yours, but know that like, this is who, what, this is what we're doing. Um, and I, I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know if that's healthy, but a part of me feels like it's not fair to just let one side have all that power and, and influence. Like we should take that too, because if one side is ignoring the rules and making up their own and the other side is trying to make change within the rules, seems like one has way more power and influence than the other. Well, and historically, candidates have also like really coveted endorsements by like key Christian leaders in the country. Totally. Too. Scott, what do you think? You've been kind of quiet. We've also been Is babbling it, on over here. Um, no worries. Um, <laughs> I think it would be a lot harder for a progressive church um, to make an endorsement or whatever um, 
because, I mean, functionally we operate in a two-party system and the Republican Party is far more homogenous in both um, uh, the makeup of the party is much more homogenous. Um, and, and so there's less diversity of ideas, I think, in, in the Republican Party and also less, you know, racial diversity and ethnic diversity. Uh, I think that's something to consider because, you know, if, for example, like if a progressive church wanted to go endorse, like, let's just say a Democrat, I mean, that would be, it would really depend on the, it would, you could endorse one Democrat and they could have com- very different stances from another one. Mm-hmm. And so I think that makes it a little bit more unclear when you're considering that a lot of these conservative churches are pretty homogenous, just like the Republican party is. And there's really only, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's a lot more, I think it's a lot easier for them to do it in a way just because there's a lot more um, similarities there. Mm which I think is something interesting to think about. So what do we do as Owenwood? We're hosting voting. (laughs) Yeah, we are. I mean, we we are hosting voting in the sanctuary. You can come vote November 3rd. Um, 7 to 7 is the time. Things will be socially distant and safe. and I think for us, like the, uh, another part that we're doing, Hannah, is we're having these conversations in a, in a public setting, right? Like none of the work that we're talking about on our podcast is definitive or authoritative, um, but it is presenting some different ideas and conversations. And then we're looking for opportunities to further cultivate and, and see what comes out of that. And hopefully, like our podcast says this for some people, that they, they spend a little time thinking about the nuance and the complexity of this and that politics is really hard and it feels personal. Um but the more we don't talk about it, the more power we give to the people who speak on our behalf, who we have no idea who they are. We have no idea what they represent and we have no idea the work that they do. Um, and so at the very least, I hope this conversation invites people to make the conversation of politics a little less taboo and we find new ways to navigate it. Thank you for joining us, Scott. It's been very refreshing to hear hear your thoughts and opinions and beliefs. Thanks. Like I said, a great honor. Scott, uh, thank you also. I don't know how many people know this, but um, Scott helped us um, get some data together as we were preparing for the primary election in July. And and we um, try to make some graphics which kind of help people stay engaged with that conversation. So thanks for doing that, man. Thanks for all that you do. Um, You know, I'm glad you're a part of White Rock and I'm excited to see what's next. Yeah, thanks. All right, dude. Don't forget to watch the Lakers game tonight. Not going to do that. I'll text He's you. not watching the Lakers. Thin Space is recorded at Owenwood Farm and Neighbor Space in Far East Dallas. You can find us on Instagram at Thin Space Pod and learn more about our work at owenwood.org. Don't forget to hit subscribe to stay up to date on all our content. This episode was mixed and produced by Brady DuBose.